population, including children, are forced to watch. It says pop- bodies are displayed often on crucifixes for days afterwards. You're listening to the news on RTHK. morning on this Thursday. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. All signs point to a tougher package on electoral reform from Beijing. IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde is put under investigation for negligence. And Alibaba reports a massive jump in revenue and earnings. It puts Jack Ma, the Alibaba chief, as China's richest man, followed by Tencent's Pony Ma and Baidu's Robin Lee. Note the theme there, all new tech. We'll also be looking at Apple's giant iPad. Bigger is better. I think ultimately it's going to open up some new use cases for iPads that we haven't quite thought of, whether it's business or education. That's Gene Munster from Piper Jaffray. Apple, uh, he's talking there about reports that a much larger iPad is coming on September 9th when Apple addresses uh, the public. But he says that may not be the big kahuna announcement. The big wild card is going to be around payments, and it's likely that the next version of the iPhone has NFC chip, and the really only reason why you'd have an NFC chip is for payments. Yeah, so you can go out and buy your car with your phone. And we'll also have more on the big rallies of late in markets. Valuations tend to go in a pendulum. You don't tend to see bull markets stop out at median valuations where we are right now. And earnings growth has accelerated again. That's Diane Swank at Mesro. She says the bull doesn't end here because the valuations are not too bad. Monster earnings coming out later today from ICBC here, the big China bank, as well as PetroChina and CNUC. So we'll, if we have time, take a look at that with some of our analysts. And we'll present a little commentary about interest rates. The economy is recovering. The labor market is recovering even though we do have the low labor force participation rate, I think the Fed's exit will happen faster than markets think. That's Professor Glenn Hubbard from Columbia, so more from him in a minute. In our featured segments, we'll be taking a closer look at the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect with Fraser Howie from New Edge Financial. We'll also look at what's driving China's electric vehicle makers. Shares of BYD and some of the other EV makers were up sharply yesterday. China looks set to pump 100 billion yuan into building a huge network of recharging stations. The FT's Tom Mitchell and Macquarie research analyst Janet Lewis will be along for that discussion. Then later, we'll be talking with Peter Tal Larson from Reuters Breaking Views about Indonesia and the agenda of its president-elect Joko Widodo. If you looked at Japan uh, last year and also at India, elections were a big catalyst for markets and you could have made some money. What about Indonesia? Well, we'll hear more from Peter Tal Larson about the possible reforms coming. We would take a look for you at markets here in just a few minutes when we get the uh, the latest figures. Uh, and it looks like it's going to be a day of caution. Beijing looks set to lay out an extremely conservative framework for Hong Kong's political reform. We get more from RTHK's Priscilla Ung. 
There has been no official word on the content of a draft resolution on electoral reform that's been submitted to the National People's Congress Standing Committee for scrutiny, but television reports cited unnamed sources as saying that the 17-page document stipulates that the composition and size of the future nominating committee for the 2017 chief executive election will remain exactly the same as the existing election committee. The sources also said future CE hopefuls can only become candidates. With the endorsement of over half the nominating committee, and the number of candidates will be capped at two or three. The standing committee will decide whether to endorse the framework on Sunday. In terms of reaction, the Democratic Party chair Emily Lau is not happy. This has not come as any surprise. Of course,、uh, we always know how the central government would act, but nevertheless, it is very infuriating, and.、Uh, And so I guess we have to do our best to protest. And one of the things that we will do is to work with the Occupy Central Trio、uh, to organize all forms of protest. And that's Emily Lau. We'll have more on this story at 8:30. IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde has been put under formal investigation for negligence. It was during her time as French Finance Minister. Ms. Lagarde says that she has no plans to step down from her post. Here's what happened: in 2008, she tried to allow an arbitration, or she decided to allow an arbitration, to end a dispute between a businessman, Bernard Tappy, and former state-owned bank Credit Lyonnais. That is what's being looked. At Ms. Lagarde denies any wrongdoing, saying it was the best option for the state. Well, we'll get to our coverage on Wall Street and European markets、uh, a little bit later on. But first, we'd like to go to our first guest this morning, Tom Mitchell, the FT's Beijing correspondent. Tom, good morning. So, we're looking at、uh, some of these、um, green vehicle makers,、uh, shares of BYD jumped. Pretty sharply. Okay. Well, we thought we had Tom ready for that discussion. So what we'll do while we wait to get him back on the line is is go back to look at Wall Street. Markets trudged to kind of a flat close. The S and P 500 was up 0.1 point to 2,000. So it closed at 2,000 yesterday, and it closed up less than a point, still at 2,000 today. The Dow gained 15 points to 17,122. Diane Swank from Mesero Financial says the party isn't over yet. You have to go back to the basics of the relationship between earnings and stock prices, and the two are very highly correlated. And if you track the two since the bull market began, the bull market has、mm-hmm. more than enough justification purely from an earnings perspective. Not only that, but PEs are、uh, rising too. So you have a very unique environment where both are going up. She says a correction would be healthy, though. We're going to have some pullbacks. I would actually like to see、uh, some. I think it would be healthy for the market. But as long as valuations are reasonable, which they are, they're not dirt cheap like they were、mm-hmm. several years ago, but they're pretty reasonable. The valuations tend to go in a pendulum. You don't tend to see bull markets stop out at median valuations where we are right now. And earnings growth has accelerated again. So you've got the power from the denominator、mm-hmm. happening, and not just multiple expansion.、Mm-hmm. Markets have been surmounting crises in Ukraine, in the Gaza Strip, and Iraq. Investors have been betting that stimulus will revive growth. Rallies from Brazil to Japan and the S&P 500 and Wall Street have sent the value of global equities to a record 66 trillion dollars. Ms. Swank says revenues have been growing as well as profits. 
And top line growth has been in the mid single digits, and that's perfectly fine in order to get closer to double digit gains on from an earnings perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think the margin story is still not over. I think margins probably continue to accelerate in the next year, mm -hmm. which is completely against the consensus that there's right. no way margins can go higher than this. I think margins will continue to surprise. But as far as M&A, I think we are very much in a sweet spot right now. But I think we're getting to the point where it's going to become mm -hmm. cheaper to um, build than buy. We'll come back to our coverage of markets uh, in a few minutes. The program uh, is now 11 minutes after 8 o'clock here on Money for Nothing. Well, as you mentioned, shares of BYD and some of the other green vehicle makers were up sharply in trading yesterday. They were lifted by reports that the central government in China may spend 100 billion yuan to build a nationwide network of recharging stations. The infrastructure plan would make green vehicles more attractive for consumers. We're joined by Tom Mitchell, the FT correspondent in Beijing. Tom, good morning. Good morning. So how much do we know about this possible spending of 100 billion yuan to build up a nationwide network? Well, not very much. Um, these reports haven't been confirmed by the Chinese government, but it would be consistent with what's been a very aggressive policy uh, response uh, this year in terms of building up electric vehicles. The Chinese government's been introducing lots of incentives um, in order to get this market kick-started. It, it's really failed to take off so far. We did see a big jump in shares. As I mentioned, BYD shares up 6% or so to 53.90. It had been sort of languishing a little bit of late. Nomura reiterated its uh, recommendation to buy the stock and lifted the target price up to $64. Uh, does it look like um, the companies that will benefit the most are known? Um, well, there are a lot of uh, electric vehicle uh, makers active, I suppose. Um, so BYD has just launched a pure electric vehicle with uh, Daimler uh, called the Denza. You also have Tesla and BMW introducing electric vehicles into the market. Um, a lot of other companies have hybrids. Uh, so, yes, there, there aren't a huge number of players. Yes, I was having lunch with uh, a gentleman here in Hong Kong yesterday who said that he thought that his Tesla was being delivered today. I haven't seen any on the streets here, but what about China? Have the deliveries of those Tesla Model S's, um, have they been rolling out? Yeah, it surprised me. They had uh, some difficulties with the launch. There was a patent troll, someone who had registered their patent, so they had to sort that out. And then there were some difficulties in terms of making sure customers had proper charging facilities, either at home or the office. But, um, Elon Musk was out in April to uh, formally launch the vehicle in China, and I start, I've started to see them around quite a bit in Beijing. Um, I've even there's a Tesla charging station just around the corner from my office. Does the country need a hundred billion yuan uh, infrastructure build out for EV charging stations, or are already uh, you know a number around? Oh no, it needs a lot more than that, probably. Um, what the car manufacturers are doing are actually trying to have charging stations installed either at each customer's workplace or home. For example, Denza, the BYD joint venture, uh, they for 10,000 RMB you can get a charging unit put in your, your parking garage or your office uh, that will charge the car in as little as three hours. Um, public stations are, are a lot more difficult in part because a Tesla charger does not necessarily match with a Denza charger and so on. There, there isn't a consistent uh, 
standards set. Is this a playground for rich people, or are you seeing more and more ordinary people express an interest in EVs? Um, I think more and more ordinary people are, but it's still, uh, these are very expensive vehicles. Even with all the government subsidies, the cost of this uh, uh, Denso will be, I think, 255,000 RMB. Of course, Tesla and BMW's i8 are going to be much more expensive than that. So um, it is still very expensive for the average car buyer, um, but, you know, people are, you know, conscious of pollution and uh, issues and, you Obviously, you save money in gasoline over time, so it's going to be a difficult sell. Um, infrastructure remains a concern if you want to drive from one city to the next, and you can't be sure of having access to char- charging facilities. Um, but I, I think there is there is a future for these vehicles. And particularly since the government is, is pushing it now, it seems like the incentive is there for people to take a look. Uh, is it still pretty nasty out on the streets? Um, is air pollution something that ordinary people talk about all the time? Um, yeah, we've been lucky in Beijing um, over recent weeks. It actually hasn't been such a bad summer. But, uh, yeah, no, pollution is, is still one of the one of the biggest problems uh, in most people's minds. And, you know, the government said in March that uh, it was going to wage war on pollution. And uh, the electric vehicles are clearly a, a, a plank in that program. Okay, Tom, I know you got to go early. Thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Tom Mitchell from the FT. The time is now 16 and a half minutes after 8 o'clock. You're listening to Money for Nothing. Let's tell you about Asian markets and how they're trading now. The ones that have opened here at 8 o'clock. The Nikkei is down 68 points. I mentioned it looked a little bit like a day of caution today. 15,466. Australia is a little bit lower, too, with the ASX 200 down 9 points. In Seoul, the Kospi is rallying up 7 points. It's been a pretty good performer here in the past uh, couple of days. The dollar-yen, 103.85. So that is kind of a flat trade for the dollar-yen. The euro continues to weaken against the U.S. dollar. It's down under 132. It is now trading at 1.319. And the uh, in terms of the pound, the pound is trading 12 Hong Kong dollars and 84 cents. Very little change. Gold, $1,283 an ounce. So gold not getting much of a bid in the last week or two. And oil prices, 102.72, anchored for Brent crude right around the $102 barrel for the past week. Well, we wanted to go back with a little bit more market coverage before we get to guest number two, Peter Tall Larson, columnist at Reuters Breaking Views, um, waiting in the wings, and we'll get to him in just a moment. Uh, the markets have been rallying a little bit also because of the ECB President Mario Draghi, as he has signaled uh, policymakers may consider introducing an asset buying plan, a QE program, so we'll call that quantitative Europe. And European stocks uh, have rallied of late. But let's go back to Glenn Hubbard the professor at Columbia Business School. He has a couple of concerns about what's happening in the U.S. One, I think the Fed is rightly concerned that a lot of people left the labor force, the lower labor force participation. To that, I would simply say, I don't think monetary policy is the answer to getting it back. And we, and we don't have much evidence that that is happening. The second is really the timing of the exit. I think that the economy is recovering. The labor market is recovering even though we do have the low labor force participation rate, I think the Fed's exit will happen faster than markets think. 
Glenn Hubbard. In Europe, markets uh, ended like this. The FTSE 100 up seven points at 68.30. The DAX was down 18 points and the CAC in Paris was up uh, just one point. Well, Indonesia's president-elect Joko Widodo has had his work cut out for him in bringing about some needed reforms as he readies to take power in October. The presidential vote still being disputed. We're joined by Peter Tall Larson, a columnist at Reuters Breaking Views. Peter, good morning. Morning, Brian. Thanks a lot for coming in. Uh, you start off your, your recent story with talking about the fresh, charismatic leader. He is charismatic. He's got a lot of attention. But is he, is he ready to fight? Well, I, I agree. I think that's the big question. Um, I mean, I think what I what was struck, I was in Jakarta last week, and what struck me was uh, there was a lot of optimism about this new new president, um, and it's somewhat similar to uh, some of the optimism that we saw in India earlier in the year with the election of Narendra Modi, and you could even compare it to. Um, you know, it's the election of Shinzo Abe in Japan back in 2012. Um, but obviously, uh, compared to those uh, leaders, uh, Widodo is in a somewhat unknown quantity. I mean, his, his track record basically extends to being mayor of his hometown, and he spent the last two years being uh, governor of Jakarta. Um, that's about it. So I, I think there is a, some questions over his, uh, his leadership abilities. But what's important about this really is that it's uh, an, a reasonably orderly transfer of power in Indonesia, which is a relatively young democracy, uh, to someone who is seen as kind of unconnected to uh, the sort of old and, and slightly shady way of doing things. So he seems dynamic. He seems charismatic. Uh, mm. Why was the margin of victory perhaps not larger? Well, I think that's one of the big uh, that's one of the big differences, really, with with Indonesia compared to uh, some of the other countries I mentioned. I mean, he had a big lead to begin with, and that shrank very substantially during the campaign. And uh, at a certain point, he was running neck and neck with his rival, and eventually uh, won by a sort of six percent margin. And then we had this messy month long constitutional court challenge from uh, from his 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 defeated uh, rival. Um, so. And then on top of that, he's he's president, but he doesn't actually his his parties or his coalition doesn't have a majority in the parliament. So, one of the things uh, he will have to do now is basically try and build a coalition so that actually has a majority in the parliament, so he can get things done. So, so the, the mandate term, isn't as great. Yeah, the mandate may not mm. be as great in terms of getting things done. Uh, you know, as an outsider, someone like me who doesn't follow too closely, you hear about two things: uh, you know, reducing the energy subsidies and building out the infrastructure. Mm. Where are we in that process? And you know, is that likely to happen? Say this year. Well, I think that's the big litmus test, really, for uh, for the new uh, for the new president. Um, and those two subjects are really connected because India has a, a, a sort of constitutional requirement to keep its budget deficit below a certain level. Indonesia, uh, in, sorry, Indonesia does. Yeah. Sorry, um, and uh, at the moment it's spending, or next year it's expected to spend about twenty percent of its GD, uh, of its of its budget on fuel subsidies, on subsidizing the cost of petrol and diesel and also electricity. And um, so as long as it's spending that kind of money on those things, it really can't spend a lot of money on infrastructure. So uh, pretty much everybody you talk to in Jakarta sees the, the sort of dealing with the fuel subsidies, which will be politically unpopular, uh, but economically sort of necessary as the big test of whether uh, Widodo is going to be a reforming president. So with real challenges uh, the country faces, uh, you would balance that up against, I suppose, uh, a lot of the advantages. What are some of the key advantages that Indonesia has at the moment? Well, you know they they um, you know they have they have a, a lot of natural resources, uh, which I mean it can be an, uh, I think it's probably an advantage, but also potentially a disadvantage. But um, I think I saw recently somewhere that they might actually be a net importer of energy. Um, you know, 
for various reasons, but you know, that doesn't seem to fit the story. Well, no, I mean, on the energy front, uh, I agree. They, they, when they're importing, especially uh, um, sort of, uh, pro, you know, kind of finished uh, petrol and things like that, they don't necessarily have a lot of refining capacity, I'm sure, although they do have oil. But, you know, they export copper and coal and palm oil and various other things. Um, they also, but the other big advantage they have really is that they have a, a very young population. I think something like half the population is under the age of 30, and you've got this sort of, they've got a sort of demographic. Uh, uh, um, kind of dividend of people coming into the workforce in the coming years, and if they can keep the growth rate up, you know, keep the potential growth rate up, then and create jobs for those people, that should help the economy. But obviously, if they, if if reforms stutter and they uh, they aren't able to create jobs for those people, it will also make it politically very difficult. I headlined your segment uh, at the outset of this program by saying, you know, we saw these massive rallies in Japan and India after mm. uh, you got uh, the election results and uh, promise of change. Uh, we haven't really seen the stock market rally that much in Indonesia. Admittedly, it's up, but it's not up by anywhere near as much as perhaps what um, some people would have expected. Uh, do you think that that's a story that plays out uh, to the positive this year, or will there still be doubts? Well, I think, I mean, the fact that it hasn't rallied so much reflects those doubts, partly over the margin of Widodo's victory and then over sort of some of these immediate challenges that he faces. Um, but as I said earlier, I think, you know, the, the fuel subsidies question really will be the big litmus test, I think, that people will be looking at from the outside world. If he's prepared to tackle that and he's able to tackle that, that I think will be a sign that, that there is sort of more potential for reform and then you could, uh, you could see some more money coming in. Okay, Peter. Um, it's an interesting uh, subject, interesting story, one that we don't pay so much attention to. Um, but as you look out over these countries in Southeast Asia, you know, compared to Thailand, compared to Malaysia, compa- com- compared to some of the uh, upcoming uh, frontier markets, um, how does Indonesia stack up? Well, it stacks up pretty well at the moment. I mean, one of the things I heard a lot in Jakarta was that, for example, uh, Japanese manufacturers are now uh, focusing very heavily on Indonesia. Uh, They now favor Indonesia more than some of the other countries in Southeast Asia, and even China is a place for investment. China, obviously, there are the political tensions, but also, you know, the turmoil in Thailand, uh, some of the protests we've seen in Vietnam. There's a sort of, there's a sense that that Indonesia has some advantages just in terms of sort of uh, of relative stability and being a bit more welcoming to uh, to, to some of these um, uh, foreign manufacturers. I mean, obviously, there's, a, there's been a nationalist overtone, a sort of protectionist overtone to some of the election campaigning, and we've seen that also with some of the things that they've been doing by banning uh, or taxing exports of minerals and so forth. So that's something to watch. But um, I think uh, if they can sort of set the right tone, actually, uh, Indonesia has some advantages in terms of attracting investment. Okay, Peter, thank you very much for joining us on Money for Nothing. Thank you. Peter Tallarsen, columnist at Reuters Breaking Views. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. We wanted to go back and take a look at BYD. We would have liked to have had these two guests on at the same time, but scheduling uh, wasn't possible in that way. So we say good morning to Janet Lewis, analyst at Macquarie Research. Janet, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, back to uh, BYD, because I had talked earlier with the FT's Tom Mitchell about this, about the recharging stations coming in China and the attraction of EVs uh, in the country and the fact that the government is pushing. BYD jumped a lot yesterday, up nearly 6%, but I understand that that um, you're noting that not everyone is a fan of BYD. Why? Uh, well, our belief is that uh, if the government does invest in infrastructure, this is a very positive move because uh, that's clearly one of the barriers to improving the, de- 
diffusion of electric vehicles. Um, but electric vehicles in China face a lot of the same problems that they face globally in that uh, the technology is still very early stage, and this is primarily the battery technology in terms of range, um, the weight of the battery, and the cost of the battery. And so uh, without significant subsidies, um, EVs are still not an appealing proposition for the average consumer. Um, our concern with BYD longer term is that uh, it's a very small auto company. Uh, it can't invest nearly the amount in R&D that big global competitors can. And once the market is meaningful enough, you will see major automakers like Volkswagen come in, and they are the ones with the big brand equity in China. And so the average consumer is much more likely to want to purchase um, a brand that they trust and that they know will uh, hold up over time, uh, rather than uh, BYD, which, uh, based on the experience of their uh, traditional gasoline fire engines, uh, doesn't have quite the longevity of use. Would that mean that a company like BYD or perhaps even Geely would be acquired by some of the big, bigger uh, companies? Um, I guess that would come down to whether they have a technology that a bigger company uh, feels is valuable. And because uh, at the end of the day, these companies have significantly lower brand equity than any of the international players. And so the only and they have cocky that... leaders, too. I mean, those two I mentioned, uh, you sort of find it hard to imagine either of those two gentlemen uh, working for a Volkswagen or, or, or um, you know, somebody else. Correct. Well, the main reason you see mergers take place in the automotive industry is to get access to a market that you don't have. And so um, it, it would be difficult to see one of the existing global players in China uh, want to, to buy a local a domestic brand. Uh, the only circumstance that you might see it happen is if they just wanted to get the authorization for capacity. But so far, none of the international brands has had trouble getting approval on capacity expansion. So... Uh, that would not seem to factor in. How is Tesla doing in China? I think it's still very early days for Tesla in China. I think um, they certainly uh, get a lot of attention. Uh, there was a story recently about uh, a Tesla owner who actually paid to put charging stations all the way between Guangdong and um, and Be Beijing so that he could drive his car there and back. But, uh, you know, these are very, very niche products at this point. So even though the... Um it looks like electric uh, vehicles, you know, for for BYD might even reach 13 billion yuan by 2015. That's according to Nomira. Uh, even a number like that is dwarfed by overall sales. But the way I would look at it is, Volkswagen has said that by 2016, it will have all its models available as plug-in hybrids. Um, that will be what. BYD is up against, and it won't be just Volkswagen. You'll have other uh, international brands with their plug-in hybrid or hybrid uh, pure EV models in place. Also, do, do, so, do, you th do you think that okay? So we get that story that the the big guys are going to come in and they're going to uh, squelch the little guys. So, but um, do you get the feeling that e that electric vehicles, pure electric vehicles, will not probably ever uh, be the standard bearer, and that the hybrids will be? Uh, it's difficult to say. We actually believe that um, the batteries are probably over the next two years going to see another jump in their technology that enables them to produce uh, longer range with much lower weight and uh, hopefully at a lower cost. 
I think once you get that next jump in technology, you do have the potential that even pure EVs could at some point become an acceptable uh, and attractive technology. Uh, but we're probably one major technological shift away from that. Okay. And a key, it just, a key in, for BYD will be, can they match that technological shift with their own battery? Yeah, just in 20 seconds or so, because we're butting up against the news, uh, is there anything on the lines of a gigafactory that Tesla's planning in the States being planned for China? Uh, not that we're aware at this point. Okay. All right. Unfortunately, we got to you late and we didn't have too much time, but very interesting uh, comments. Thank you for joining us. Janet Lewis, analyst at McCoy Research. This is Money for Nothing at 8.30. Quick weather update. Broad area of low pressure around. Showers expected, mainly cloudy. Isolated thunderstorms, too, with a maximum temperature of 31. R-T-H-K, Radio 3. Samantha Butler with the news. Pan-Democrats have vowed to veto the government's political reform proposal if it's as conservative as the one reportedly being considered by the National People's Congress Standing Committee. Sources say Beijing is considering a 1,200-member committee that will nominate two or three chief executive candidates, and to become a candidate, a person will need the support of over half of that committee. Joseph Cheng, the convener of the Alliance for True Democracy, said it was the worst kind of scenario. He told RTHK this morning that 26 pro-democracy legislators had already said they wouldn't accept it, meaning it wouldn't be approved in the legislature. It is not surprising. It conforms to our worst kind of scenario, namely that through a small circle election, the pro-Beijing elites will control a majority of the nomination committee, and this absolute majority will then control the entire list of the candidates in the chief executive election. This is what we fear most, and unfortunately, this seems to become a reality. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has declared victory in the war in Gaza against Hamas a day after a ceasefire ended seven weeks of fighting. Speaking on national television, Mr Netanyahu said Hamas's military capabilities had been badly damaged. Have we reached our goal in achieving a long-term ceasefire? I think it's still too early to say, but I can say that we dealt a heavy blow to Hamas and terrorist groups. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning, 8.33. This is Money for Nothing on Radio 3. The NPC Standing Committee is said to be scrutinizing a framework for Hong Kong's political reform that's even more conservative than previously imagined. Television reports quote sources as saying that the plan is for the composition and size of the nominating committee for the 2017 CE vote to be exactly the same as the existing 1,200-member election committee. They say that's on top of the 50% threshold for CE hopefuls that will be endorsed by the nominating committee, and it would cap the number of candidates Candidates at two or three. Executive Counselor and DAB lawmaker Starry Lee told us at RTHK she believes the final draft will be close to what has been disclosed. Our Mike Weeks asked her whether such tough restrictions would actually give us more than one candidate. Oh, yes, of course. I think um, 
uh, well, the uh, nominating committee uh, members uh, should well understand one of their role is to make sure that uh, the forthcoming CE election to be competitive. I think as uh, they should try to nominate uh, two to three or to make sure that the um, future CE election is competitive. Therefore, I, I, I'm confident that the future CE election, if we can have, uh, will be competitive. How will people actually, how will people come up to be nominated by the committee? How will that work? I think like uh, what we have now, uh, every interested candidate who fulfill the basic requirement can go to ask for the uh, nomination from the nominating committee members. If they can have uh, like one eighth or one tenth of the members who support them, then they can uh, try to persuade the nominating committee as a whole to support them to be the final candidate for uh, but, universal suffrage. But doesn't that make the nominating committee essentially an election committee? I mean, you're saying if they get... So there's a sort of pre-nominating process like we had before with the election committee and then they get elected by the nominating committee to go forward for election by the general public it all seems remarkably cumbersome and uh, doesn't it to you i can i i I can't agree to your point because i think um, uh, uh, all the uh, future uh, candidates have to go through the one people one vote process and i don't think uh, that process can be done. No, but I'm, I'm saying the there will be committee. there'll be a, a, a pre-election, won't there, by well, the nominating but it's committee? Uh, state in the basic law that the nominating committee do have that power to nominate. I know, but it doesn't candidate. say that there should be a pre-election. Surely, does it? Well, I think uh, it all depends on you look at it, because okay. uh, you know that nominating committee consists of uh, representative from four sectors. If a future candidate can secure high support from every sector, and I think it helped uh, 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 that candidate uh, in the future. Okay. um, If, uh, as we understand it, the framework is as we've understood it from reports, um, what what is the point of holding a second round of public consultation? Surely all these issues are then decided. Well, uh, there's still a lot... um, uh, uh, Well, of course... I think uh, there's still something that we can do. But but uh, what? Well, it, well, how how um, how to go through the universal suffrage process, right? After the. Uh, but, but surely we have uh, you know ballot stations like we would for any other for ledge elections, and people go along I, to vote. I don't That's think it's that simple, right? Uh, there's a chance that uh, uh, how many? W- well, do we uh, have to make sure that the future? Uh, CE have to get the uh, majority support and how if that nominated or if that uh, final CE well I think there are a lot to be discussed still Okay, Uh, I've got to ask you for a second round of public nomination would you support allowing the people of Hong Kong a simple yes or no vote on the framework for the 2017 election whether we accept it or we reject it I think uh, well after the resolution uh, release. I think a lot of opinion polls would be conducted. Uh, that, that I know, but, sure but as a second conducted. consultation, couldn't we just simply ask the people of Hong Kong to vote yes or no, whether we accept it? I think um, it is uh, difficult because um, if 
you're asking something that to be done by the government. Sorry, yeah. but I mean, surely it, it, you, uh, the government says it's been representing the views of the people of Hong Kong. Surely the people of Hong Kong should have a say in whether they back or they don't back this uh, way to move forward to universal suffrage. Well, yes, I, for sure, Hong Kong people uh, can have a lot of uh, chance to voice out whether they support that proposal or not, right? That, that is what they should uh, done. I mean, I mean, do in the second stage of consultation, right? The, the reason I'm asking this is because it appears if the framework is as conservative as this, we're going to be in for a long period of, or possibly a long period of political unrest. I just wondered whether it would be better to cut that short by actually holding a, a public referendum, uh, the government to hold a public referendum on the framework and whether we agree with it or not, because then also that would put pressure if uh, the people of Hong Kong do agree on it, for the pan-democrats to pass it, or if we don't agree on it, then perhaps the whole thing should be dropped. I don't think the Hong Kong government have the legal backing to do a referendum, but The I legal think, backing uh, from who? Who does it need legal backing from to conduct a referendum like that in a public consultation? But, but I think a lot of uh, uh, bodies will conduct opinion polls on the first hand, and the second thing is the, uh, the people, every people can, can show, can express their views during the second consultation, and this is the reason why we should have a second consultation. Executive Councillor and DAB lawmaker Starry Lee there speaking earlier this morning on our program Hong Kong Today with RTHK's Mike Weeks. By the way, the NPC Standing Committee will endorse the constitutional reform package. It's expected on Sunday in Beijing. Well, we've got um, guests coming up in just a moment. Uh, Fraser Howie, Senior Director at New Edge Financial, uh, waiting in the wings. Just one more story to get to before we get to that uh, interview. The High Court has heard that the Chief Executive reversed a government policy to open up the free-to-air TV market. It was meant to be open to an unlimited number of qualified broadcasters. The Executive Council eventually decided to reject a license bid from Hong Kong Television Network last October. Lawyers for HKTV said notes from Exco meetings also showed that CY Leung had warned the council that more competition in the broadcasting market might not be in the ultimate interest of consumers. Suresh Chander reports. HKTV is seeking to quash the government's decision not to grant it a free TV broadcasting license. Its lawyer said HKTV submitted an application for a free TV license in 2009 while Donald Chung was still the chief executive. At the time, the government was inclined to grant it a license as well as to the other two applicants. Council said the government also felt that it was not under any obligation to protect ATV should it run into problems as a result of the granting of the new licenses. But in July 2012, Mr. Leung became the chief executive. The applications were discussed by the executive council on a number of occasions and members started raising questions on the sustainability of three new broadcasters and the possible cutthroat competition that could ensue in the broadcasting industry if the licenses were granted. The lawyer said that it appeared from the council's notes they had obtained that Mr. Leung then decided to adopt a gradual and orderly approach in granting licenses without seeking the views of the communications authority. The lawyer said this was a departure from a policy that the government adopted in 1998 to open up the broadcasting market and not setting a limit on the number of licenses that could be issued. Council also pointed out that Mr. Leung already 
already knew that HKTV had received the lowest score among the three applicants for programming strategy and decided that the station was not as good as the other two contenders. HKTV's application was eventually rejected, while the ones from the other two contenders were approved. Council said the decision-making process that led to refusal of a license for HKTV was defective and should be quashed. The hearing continues. And a very good morning to you. 17 minutes before 9 o'clock. Some quick hits for you this morning. Alibaba's first quarter net almost tripled to $1.99 billion. We know this from some filings having to do with the IPO that's upcoming. Jack Ma emerges as China's richest man before the Alibaba IPO. Pony Ma from Tencent number 2. We'll get Hong Kong July retail sales out later today. So lots of interesting items and also some very big earnings. ICBC, PetroChina, and Sino. Well, if you've been listening to this program of late. You know, we've talked an awful lot about the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect, and people are speculating which stocks mainlanders would buy here and which A-shares investors here might like to buy. There are a few um, possible challenges tied to all of this, some technical things. We've got Fraser Howard with us now from New Edge Financial. Uh, Mr. Howie, good morning. Good morning. So the capital gains tax issue is something that people have have been uh, pondering. Um, is that going to be a difficult one to fix? Um, it shouldn't be. Ultimately, Chinese law states very simply that uh, foreigners are, should be charged 10% on gross capital gains. In China, that's what their law states. Their trouble is they've never enacted it. QFII investors have been waiting now for 12 years with uncertainty over tax. The problem is that's what the law states, but how do you implement it? Who calculates the gains? Who collects the tax? That's not, that's, that's not clear. And in the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect, it becomes more problematic because you're, as, as an investor, you can trade through more brokers as long as your stock is in the right account. So it's a technical problem rather than anything else. But the problem is the Chinese authorities, the tax authorities, won't go along and actually give a definitive answer. So investors hate uncertainty. Do you think this is enough that it will actually um, be a little bit of a clamp on the excitement from foreign fund managers? It it could be. It hasn't really stopped QFIIs. There's obviously 250 or so QFIIs now, $50 billion or so have gone into that market and people actively trading. There it's somewhat easier, though, of course, because there you have a single account for each QFI. So what happens is people are provisioning for uh, the taxes to go along. Under the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect, it's a lot harder to see how a retail investor, say in Hong Kong, using his local broker in Kowloon, who exactly is going to be you know, provisioning and ca- doing the calculations to, 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 to figure out what the tax is. So it could certainly put a damper on some things. I think some of the institutional firms will be provisioning for this. Uh, but it's clearly one of these details which we should have had cleared up by now was of promised to have been cleared up or was expected to have been cleared up, and yet nothing's really been done. It's been quite disappointing. I'm very positive on the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect. I think it's a great idea. I think it shows a change of thinking in Beijing. But uh, sadly, the details are lacking, and that's the case with many things with China. Yes, maybe all the ducks not in a row. Another possible snag is holidays. We have different holidays. Um, What's the thinking on that? Yeah, again, this is another problem where there's. I, I think they've not grasped the the, the 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 nettle, as it were, and faced the difficult problem at the moment. They're just saying you've got to have both markets open, and that's clearly a problem because Hong Kong has Christmas and Easter, and the mainland doesn't. 
Um, and so there's, at the moment, if you, unless both markets are open and both markets are also open for settlement, then you can't trade. That's certainly going to be a dampener, and in periods of high volatility, it's going to be a problem. Um, I think, though, that enough people, it's not going to stop the program, but it's going to be one of these operational inefficiencies about the program, which is going to make it far from ideal. Sadly, though, again, it's not as if this is new. We knew about this. This was a problem back in April when the program was announced, and uh, we were warned that this may happen. I think, ultimately, though, Hong Kong and Shanghai will need to understand you can have different holidays, but you'll need to provide cover on holidays if you're going to run these international programs. Damn, Fraser, you're such a good talker. I just serve it up to you on a platter. What about uh, trade settlement, the T plus two system here? Yeah, no, that's uh, I, I know I, I've been reading the press a, a great deal on this and the, the documentation. And Hong Kong's very proud of its T plus two, which is a very international DVP type of system, and that works. I've also been trading in China for many, many years, and it works really well as well. So both systems work; they're just not compatible. Um, I don't think it should be that much of a problem. I think Hong Kong investors, instead of, sort of complaining, it's not like Hong Kong. You just need to accept, hey, it isn't Hong Kong. It is Shanghai and it's Shenzhen, and this, or not Shenzhen at the moment. But it does work very well in the mainland. It does settle very efficiently. So in that sense, although it is different, it does work. I think you have to make that under, have that understanding that you are operating in a different market. And just so take a minute. It shouldn't be too much of a problem. Fraser, just take a minute to explain that to um, ordinary listeners, maybe not so active in markets, uh, what, the, um, what the significance is that you'd have to have your money or your shares with the broker on the day that you actually trade. Well, there's a couple of things there. First of all is uh, in Hong Kong, if you buy a share today, then you don't need to basically have your money with the broker until T plus two. You have a couple of days to get your money together. That's rolling, what's called rolling settlement. In China, actually, if you're a local uh, investor in China, you actually need your money in the account before you trade. Under the Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect, you don't actually need your money to the end of the day you place your order or get executed. So you need to have your money earlier in the settlement cycle, effectively on the same day. So that's going to be a shock for some people. In the same way, the way they've set up the accounts in China and under Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect, you need to ensure that if you want to sell on, if you want to sell today, for instance, on a Thursday, you need to have your stock with your broker moved from the clearinghouse to the broker that you're going to sell through by 7.30 in the morning. That's going to be a shock to a lot of people. I think a lot of local Hong Kong brokers probably don't have staff in at 7.30 in the morning. Yeah. So that's clearly going to cause a problem. Institutional investors and no, bigger houses, no problem. they're going to suck it up. Yeah. They'll still not like it. Okay, we like sucking up. Um, we like it when people, you know, come to the uh, table and come to the plate and suck it up. Uh, I'll serve you uh, another little item here on the poo-poo platter. What about quotas? What about the issues there? You know, it's interesting. I, uh, when this first came out, I was hugely positive on this uh, program for two reasons. First is there's no requirement on what type of investors can invest into the mainland. And secondly, the quota is very, very big. Um, a total of $50 billion or so can be invested in China, and I forget the exact number, but $2.5 billion on any given day. That's a huge amount of money compared to everything that's gone before. Um, there's a lot of Hong Kong brokers saying the quotas aren't big enough, and I think, well, that's great. Go and use what you've got, and no doubt more will be introduced. I think if you look at all previous experiments of foreigners getting invested into China, quotas have been extremely small. It's taken 12 years of QFII to get $50 billion of quota and get $50 billion into China. That we're starting off with such big quotas, I think, is actually very positive. 
this is never going to be perfect. I don't, you don't get me wrong. I don't think there's going to be any scandals or frauds or anything like that. There's going to be teething troubles. It's a positive step forward, but let's just see how it goes. It's never going to be a completely open market. China does want to exercise control and, you know, and politics and elections and every area. And it's going to be no different of money coming in. But this is ultimately a very good step and far better than anything we've seen before. Okay, setting that aside with the final question, how do you feel generally about markets in Hong Kong and Shanghai and Shenzhen at the moment? Yeah, I, it, it's very difficult. Obviously, there has been a lot of optimism recently um, and about just the Chinese economy is getting better. I think, though, this is very much a trader's market that you, the Chinese economy has got a whole host of problems it's struggling with, it will continue to struggle with. Clearly, a weakening property market, clearly problems of bad debts in the economy. You've got a, an economy that is having a, a good month followed by a bad month followed by a good month. It's up and down, um, but it's ultimately grinding down. China's got a lot of problems. Um, Hong Kong is certainly coming into some turbulent waters. You know, your previous story there, just about the elections and the political ramifications of what's going on in Hong Kong, that's clearly going to have some impact on investor confidence and certainly lead to volatile markets. I think I, I don't directly advise people, but I certainly feel that anyone trading Hong Kong and China now needs to be thinking of these as short-term trading markets because the yeah. future is very uncertain. Yeah, good and point. So it's really a good point because, you know, the July story was that these things were rallying. And then by the time it gets to the press and people are talking about it in August, you look and August hasn't been a good month. No, I know this is the trouble that basically by the time it percolates up, you know, yep. to the to yep. the to the popular press, as it were, a lot of the rally may actually have happened, and you actually don't know. You know, it's it's slowly building up. Then it has a bit of a spurt, and then you think, oh, that's most of the rally actually done. We've seen this time and time again. You know, we're not going back to what China was in 06, 07, or 08. China's clearly in a much harder place than it was before. Hong Kong, as well, is clearly in a much more volatile environment. You read a lot of these stories around the politics and Occupy Central, and some of it actually you know, can be very scary um, on, on both sides. There's clearly a lot of very entrenched positions. There seems to be very little room for flexibility. And so you, these are clearly events which have the ability to shock markets. They're not going to sink Hong Kong. They're not, you know, they're not looking at collapse but certainly events that can knock markets down 3 or 4% quite easily and burn a lot of people. Okay, Fraser, next job for you, hosting money for nothing. Come in here. You hardly put a word wrong. Amazing. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us. Fraser, Fraser Howie, Senior Director at New Edge Financial and author of Red Capitalism and Privatizing China. Yes, more stimulating business talk radio here on Radio 3 in Money for Nothing. Let's look at markets here. The Nikkei down 90 points at 15,443. So a little bit of a down day shaping up, at least from the markets that are open at this hour. Seoul is a little higher, but Australia is a little lower. Oil prices uh, a little bit lower at 102.64, and gold is flat at 12.83. We get back to our news flow now. Just a day after the presidents of Ukraine and Russia met in Belarus and agreed to promote a ceasefire in eastern Ukraine, the conflict there has now actually intensified. Not just is heavy fighting being reported from the rebel-held cities of Donetsk and Luhansk, but also from further south down along the coast. The charge d'affaires at the Ukrainian embassy in London, Andrei Kuzmenko, accused the Russians of becoming increasingly involved. 
Unfortunately, we are witnessing the attempts of the Russian to flood Ukraine with their troops, with their armament, and uh, with the fight. This is the truth. Each day they are crossing the Ukrainian border, and right now they even do not trying to make the attempt of, let's say, camouflage that they are the mercenaries or the local guys. They're fighting in their uniform, they're fighting with their documents, and we have already taken the group of more than dozen famous Russian paratroopers. According to Ukraine's National Security Council, a town close to the Russian border has come under shell fire, both from within Ukraine and from Russian territory. The BBC's David Stern has the latest from Kiev. There's a lot of fighting. We could uh, go bit by uh, town by town, but to say in general that there is a major offensive going on by the rebels. Um, we have the offensive in uh, Lugansk, uh, or fighting in Lugansk, in Donetsk as before, but now we have what the Ukrainians are calling a third front in the south. Um, there seems to be uh, heavy fighting, as I say, and, and there are reports that the rebels are pushing back the Ukrainian forces. And the main the Ukrainians accuse uh, Russia of sending troops in over the border into the south uh, to, uh, to carry out this, uh, this attack. Um, we can't say exactly who's doing the fighting, but there are, there are a lot of questions being raised how the rebels actually got there, because this is an area that was completely controlled by the government beforehand. And as far as anyone can see, the only way to get in would be through the Russian border or by some amazing stealth attack, which apparently is, um, nobody's talking about at the moment. In other news, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has given his first public response to the ceasefire agreement that was reached with the Palestinians. He declared victory for Israel. Mr. Netanyahu said that the goals achieved were the long-term demilitarization of Gaza and the political isolation of Hamas. And he warned Hamas against launching any more rockets into Israel. I take this opportunity to say that if Hamas resumes fire, we will not tolerate a sprinkle of shooting at any part of Israel. Next time, we will respond even more vigorously. The mother of a journalist being held by the Islamic State has released an emotional video that is an appeal to the captors. Stephen Scotloff, or rather Sotloff, is being held by the same group of militants who recently released a, a video of the execution of another newsman, James Foley. Shirley Sotloff addressed her plea directly to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who is the self-declared caliph or leader of the Islamic State. Here's audio from that video. I'm sending this message to you, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi al-Qurashi al-Husseini, the Caliph of the Islamic State. I am Shirley Sotloff. My son Stephen is in your hands. Stephen is a journalist who traveled to the Middle East to cover the suffering of Muslims at the hand of tyrants. Stephen is a loyal and generous son, brother, and grandson. He's an honorable man and has always tried to help the weak. We have not seen Stephen for over a year and we miss him very much. We want to see him home safe and sound and to hug him. Since Stephen's capture, I've learned a lot about Islam. I've learned that Islam teaches that no individual should be held responsible for the sins of others. Stephen has no control over the actions of the U.S. government. He's an innocent journalist. I've always learned that you, the caliph, can grant amnesty. I ask you to please release my child. 
that is the mother, um, Shirley Sotloff, of Stephen Sotloff being held by those militants. Well, many people believe the creation of calligraphy is one of China's primary contributions to civilization. But is such handwriting becoming a relic of history on the mainland? We get more from the BBC's Celia Hatton. Millions in China tune into this television game show every week. It's like a spelling bee, but these young contestants must write Chinese characters by hand. Every stroke, every dash must be in the correct spot. After two tense rounds, this 17-year-old is bumped from the contest. I wanted to compete before I was too old, she told me. Contestants typically spend months studying dictionaries to prepare for the show, but they're an exception. All over the country, Chinese people are forgetting how to write their own language without computerized help. The smartphones and computers used every day here have eliminated the need to remember how to write many of those characters. The result? It's possible to recognize characters without remembering how to write them. And uh, we got that uh, report from the BBC, Celia Hatton. Well, the time is just a minute now before 9 o'clock. That's our program for today. Thanks for joining us. A host of guests this morning, Tom Mitchell, Peter Tall Larson from Reuters Breaking Views, Janet Lewis from Macquarie Research, and uh, our last guest, Fraser Howie. I told him that he should come and host Money for Nothing, and we put that under the category of how to become poor. <laughs> He's probably doing much better as the senior director of New Edge Financial. Okay, the weather today as we go out, mainly cloudy with some showers, some squally thunderstorms expected as well. Going to be a kind of inclement day, mainly cloudy skies and not only showers, but thunder showers as well. But mainly fine and hot in the next few days. Thanks for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Morning Brew is coming up next. Radio 3